Lord, we love you. We love you so much, and we thank you for loving us. We thank you for loving us enough, Lord, to awaken us from our slumber. Lord, to breathe life into our dead and, and weary bones, God. To wake us from that death, Lord, to bring us to life in Christ. Lord, not just so that we could live for your glory, although that is enough, and let us be consumed by that, but also that we could do it out of knowing and being known by you. Let us marvel at that, God. Let us live a life in response to that reality. Lord, again, not just something that we do, but something that we are. So let us come to your word humbly this morning. Let us come to your word hungry this morning. Let us walk away unified and boldened for your purpose in this world. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, also, just continuing the experiment, if you use the Bible app, the one that's brown with yellow letters made by version, we've got an event. It's called an event. It's a it's a kind of a resource on there that kind of can help guide you along in the text today. So if you use that, go to the More tab, select Events. If you have your GPS on, it'll pop up the Bridge Montrose right away. And it's kind of just got some helpful resources there. It's got the text, a place for notes, some further thoughts for reflection, um, prayer requests, things like that. Again, if you like that kind of thing, use it. If you don't, Great. Don't worry about it. So, but that's, again, the, the YouVersion Bible app. Feel free to go to it. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. We're going to be starting at verse 15 today. Um, there's a Bible under a chair near you if you need a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at all, feel free to take that with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you. Um, so Matthew 7, man, we are coming down the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount this week and next week. Is, is our wrap-up. And so last week, as we talked through this, we entered into the summary section of Jesus' sermon. And just to make sure we're all clear, since I know there's some here that it's their first time, just in case you don't know, this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Um, and it's Jesus' first recorded sermon and his longest recorded sermon in all of Scripture. Uh, we're sure it wasn't all of the sermons he taught, and we're even sure that this sermon is not every word he said in this sermon, but it was what, was what the Holy Spirit led the people that recorded it to write down for us. But it's the teaching of Jesus. So if, we, so if we say that we are a people of Jesus, this matters to us. So he's coming in, he's taught us this, this grand picture of, of, again, just the full picture of what it is to be a Christ follower, to be in Christ, and to live in this world, but not of this world for his glory. And now he's summarizing it. It's the last words, right? So they're important. These matter. And so last week, as we, as we transitioned into this summary, Jesus taught us about the wide and the narrow gate, if you recall. And it wasn't, that, it wasn't narrow like a funnel, but it was a narrow in the way that people would choose to follow. It was difficult. It's full of, it's full of obstacles and persecution. And so it's saying it's the road less chosen because it's a more difficult road. The, the road and the gate that is wide is chosen by many because it's easy and of comfort, but it ultimately it leads to destruction and death. So the way that is narrow is the one that leads to life. And we choose it because of the reward that is ahead as well as the present purpose of that reward. Um, so that was, kind of, that was last week. And, and you know, what we saw was as we think about the wide and the narrow road, really what, what, what keeps us from the narrow road is often uh, the, the abilities, interests, and possessions that we have. Those things that we elevate, that, that are good things, but that we elevate as, as the main things that we're not willing to shed for the sake of the gospel. 
We're not willing to endure hardship by, by either denying some of these or letting some of these go or adjusting our priorities because we've been given this talent or we've been given this ability or this passion or these things, and we say those are more important. So again, that, that's just kind of the picture from last week. So again, Jesus is driving home. It's like he's wanting to put the, paint the picture of how important this call on our lives is in Christ. And what, that we're not just saved to salvation for eternity, but we're also saved to present purpose and mission with him. So the, those that do choose the narrow gate, the narrow road, they do so out of an obedience and out of uh, an affection that comes out of that obedience. Again, one of relationship. Um, as Andy said, he's a sovereign God. He's mighty. He's holy. He's holy other. He's righteous. He's perfect. He cannot be compared to. But he's also a near and good God. He's a good father, father who cares. So that's the picture we see. So Jesus is continuing his summary. He's driving home the point that we cannot just coast through this life, that there is a calling in this, in this blessing. So that's where we're at, Matthew 7, 15 through 23. We're going to read our whole passage, and then we're going, to work, we're, we're going to work back through it. So let's go together here, Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Here we go. It says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You're like, Heath, why are you in such a good mood today? That just sounds heavy. It just sounds rough. We'll see, because it's about knowing and being known. I think we often miss that verses 15 through 20, well, I think we miss what they're about. I think when we read that, we often make it, and I think it's out of a right motive, we make it a very like personal thing to us. We make it about us making sure that we live right and produce the right kind of fruit. And that is definitely a worthy endeavor. And Scripture points us to that. The whole Sermon on the Mount has pointed us to that over and over again of making sure that our lives line up with the reality of the work of Christ that has happened in us. But that's not the intent of this passage. What is the intent? This, these, these verses, 15 through 20, are a warning. They're a warning. They're a warning to the people of God. They're a warning to the church, capital C. They're a warning to us as a gathered people of God, as a local church. What does it say? It says, beware. That's why I say it's a warning. Pretty obvious. Beware of what? Of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This is the drive. This is the focus of what Jesus is telling us here. He's saying, hey, be aware. Don't be mindless. Have your eyes open. Have your heart tender. Have your mind turned to me. Beware. There are false prophets you need, to, you need to recognize them. The false prophet or teacher in view here is not the one that blatantly comes against the truth of God. It's not the one who says that the, Jesus is not the Messiah just blatantly out front, the one that says there is no God. That is not the false prophet. 
That's just someone who doesn't speak the truth. The false prophet speaks to ill motive, you know, hidden intentions. Again, see the imagery there, the wolf in sheep's clothing. Why does the wolf put on the sheep's clothing? So that he can get in, in with the sheep and cause harm. Get past the shepherd, right? So we see that it's not just the blatant speaker of untruth, right? The one who just says this is not true. It's the one who presents themselves as a friend of God and the gospel and a friend of the people of God. And they have a definite agenda that is separate of God's intent. That is what a false prophet is. So what does the false prophet do? They deceive, they distract, and they dilute the truth. They, they lull people to sleep as if there's nothing at stake. Or that the goal is something other than God's glory and his desire of the way in which he means to bring glory. We see a picture of this prophet who lulls to sleep in Jeremiah 8.11. He's speaking of this false prophet. says, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Think of the false prophet that, that diminishes the impact of sin, that diminishes the offense of sin against you, against this world, against the character and glory of a loving God. What is destructive about that? If we believe that it is the glory of God that draws men to himself, that it is the love of God that draws men in and that compels us to go out, if we are distracted and lulled to sleep from our need for him, if we are turned, we'll, we'll talk through some practicalities of what this looks like in a minute, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there, but, but we see that this, this false sense of, of we're okay, I mean, that's one of the greatest works a false prophet can do, peace, peace, when there is no peace, that heals no wounds. That's a band-aid that's festering underneath. Or they build their own kingdom instead of God's. You hear their name way more than you hear His name. They're more interested in their name. And we see this goes blatantly in the face of Isaiah 26, 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance or renown are the desire of our soul. This is what we were created for. This is what we were redeemed for. And this is not the intent or desire of the false prophet or teacher that we are being warned against. So, because we are zealous for the glory of God, we hunger for it, we desire it, where there is no satisfaction outside of that, and its purpose through the proclamation of the gospel, we must watch out for these false teachers. But whose responsibility is Jesus pointing this to? Whose responsibility is this? Wouldn't it be natural to think that it's the leaders of the church, elders, pastoral staff, and, and any hierarchy you have after that, we think, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be natural to say, it's there? isn't that who Jesus is talking to here? It's not. I mean, it seems like that would make sense because they're the professionals. Man, I'm glad it's not that. Matthew 7, 16, the first part of it says, you will recognize them by their fruits. That is a general you. That's a you to the general audience, a, a you to all those that are in, in Christ. Again, all those that make up the church, all those who have confessed Christ and come into fellowship that he has brought them into. So you, it is, it is the general sense addressing all followers of Jesus. So that means whose responsibility is it? It is all of our responsibility. And when you come into fellowship with the Lord in Christ, you're also coming into fellowship with the church, each other, because we are given a bond sealed by the Holy Spirit and his truth. And we also come into a fellowship of responsibility. 
And so it is all of our responsibility. Yes, as, in, as, we, as we understand elders, God gave the elders, elders to the church. The role of elders, main two priorities, main two responsibilities is to guard the flock and to guard doctrine. As we act as steward shepherds of the local bodies that we lead. But just because it is the elder's primary responsibility doesn't mean that it is exclusively the elder's responsibility. Remember that 1 Peter 2.9 says, We are a priesthood of believers. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Everyone who is in Christ, everyone who has called on Jesus, everyone who has experienced that redemption, that transition, that exchange from death to life, from sinner to saint, you are a part of this. We have to, we, we don't say it enough, but we have to see us as a people, not just an organization, not just some people that come together for fun events or fun programs or fun outings but that we are a people, a family, bound together by something greater than ourselves, bound together by something greater than common interest or common hobbies or common place or common time. We are bound together by the eternal work of God in Christ. We are given fellowship in the fact that we all understand our need. We are all adopted as sons and daughters. So we have to see us as a people, bound together, sharing responsibility. I mean, Thinking about this, it's kind of like in, in, our, in our expression of the local church, talk about like see something, say something. That's kind of like the basic idea here. It's like, hey, everybody, like be on your toes. Be, well, again, man, as I do, it's kind of think a new shtick, uh, old, old shtick. I just get ahead of myself. But, but again, like it's just this calling out of all of us. Think multi-directional empowerment. So often we want to settle into this thing where it's just we do what the people above us say. And, our, and much of our world kind of reinforces that. In your, in your work, most, most have a really clear organizational structure with an org chart, and it's, you know, this ladder, bang, 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 it may spread out, but it's always this thing. You know, and we, we do have a top-down leadership structure here at the bridge. And it starts with Jesus, and it gets real flat after that. <laughs> but it starts with Jesus. He is our head pastor. He is the head of the church, as we see in Ephesians. Jesus is the head of our church. We follow him, and we, and we lead out in, as servant leaders, and we lead with conviction in different ways, but we also are all followers, and we're also all responsible for each other. So think multidirectional empowerment. This starts in the most fundamental spiritual levels, and it goes to all levels. Take responsibility for one another. Take responsibility for the mission of God through this local church. Do not be a spectator. Do not be a passenger. Do not be passive. Be a part. Take responsibility. We, we have to have that reality for us. So fight against the drone mentality, the worker bee. Man, we want to live with great humility and unity as a, as a church in this place. We don't want to have divisiveness, but yet we must because we hold all things up against the truth of God. And we all have the Holy Spirit. We must have the space for healthy discourse. We must have the space for that, that voice that each of us know that we have because the authority is not our own, but it is Christ in us. And so take responsibility. Multi-directional empowerment. Up, sideways, down, any direction you can think of. I mean, multi-directional empowerment.
That's what we want. All because we have all been given the Holy Spirit, empowered by Him. We have a wisdom that's not our own. So we take responsibility because, once again, we, just like we chose the narrow road and the narrow gate because of the reward that is ahead and the mission that is present, we take on this responsibility for the exact same reason. Because of the reward that is ahead and the mission that is present. So we see that we all have this responsibility to watch out for false teachers. And that seems daunting. Like, don't you have to go through special training for that? Like, what does that take? Like, how, is some, at what point am I able to recognize a false teacher? Jesus points us to the way once again. Matthew 7, 16 through 20. Says you will recognize them by their fruit. So he's telling you how to recognize a false teacher. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. Here the, here's that. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Not just some of each, but bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So he makes, Jesus makes sure to, he covers all the bases. He speaks it in the positive and in the negative and the inverse positive and the inverse negative. Like he just covers it every way here. He's like, just know that good fruit comes from good trees, bad fruit comes from bad trees, and we know this is metaphorical, so we're talking about the goodness of Christ in us. Every tree that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And we will see this does not mean works save us. So we recognize false teachers by their fruit. I have this really confusing tree in my backyard. Sam and I hung around my tree a lot a couple weeks ago. My, my citrus tree. That's all I know to call it is a citrus tree. Because it is growing, and I, I feel like some mad scientist created this tree, and it's got like some of every kind of genome of citrus, is that the right word? Citrus, of, like, of, of like every kind of citrus thing, because it's growing. And, and I look at it, and it's got these beautiful limes growing on it. And it's like the most perfect looking lime. And I squeeze it, and I'm like, is that lime right? It feels a little hard. I pull it off, I cut it open, it's not a lime. I'm like, dang, it's not a lime. So they keep growing. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So it's, it's okay, maybe, okay, it's a, it's a lemon. Kind of a pale greenish-yellow lemon. You know, lemons are green before, before they're yellow, so maybe, it was, maybe, maybe it's a lemon now. And I look, and I say, okay, that looks like what a lemon should look like. And I'm not kidding. This is not made up for the sake of this, like this teaching. This is really the tree in my backyard. And, I, and I'm like, okay, now that's a, that's a different color lemon than I'm used to, but it's a ripe lemon. It's got to be. It's shaped right. It basically has all the markers. Pull it off, and I mean, there's like just skin this thick and fruit this little. And I'm like, okay, so it's not ready yet. So I, it keeps growing. And then it looks into like maybe it's this orange, this pale orange slash maybe some kind of weird small grapefruit. And it's grown, and I, I'm like, this has got to be it. I mean, the next step is death, I think. So I don't, I don't I think this thing has anywhere else to grow to. So I pull it off. And I cut it open, and it tastes horrible. It doesn't even taste, I don't even like grapefruit, but I can tell it doesn't taste like a grapefruit. It just tastes horrible. So it never develops any fruit. It's the most confusing tree. I look at it, and I, I, the best I can tell is a citrus tree, but I cannot tell any more than that. It does not, this tree is not producing the fruit that it should. I look at it, and I cannot tell, and that's basically what Jesus is saying here. He's like, hey, look at the fruit. The fruit will tell you, and if you can't tell by its fruit, then it's not real. 
That simple. Jesus doubles down here. Like I said, he, he, he makes it clear that he speaks it in the positive and the negative, the inverse of the positive and the negative, of good trees only do good fruit, bad trees, bad trees and vice versa, blah, blah, blah. We, we get that. He makes it really clear. And what he's saying is that this cannot be faked. A false prophet will be found out. You cannot fake this. Why? Why can't it be faked? So I've seen some people fake it pretty good. I've faked it pretty good in different ways. I think the foundational truth is that this, the fruit of our lives comes out of a transforming trust in Jesus. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, you do not have the willpower. You do not have the strength. You do not have the wisdom to bear the kind of fruit that God requires on your own. You may be able to, to sprint for a little bit and stay in line for a little bit, but eventually the false, prophets will, the false prophet will be found out by their fruit. That speaks to the drastic transformation that happens in Christ. Again, we've already said some of it. We've described death to life, the old becoming totally new, not just polished, but totally new. So, so, so what do we look for practically in false prophets? Just to, give us, just to give us some handles to this, right? So conceptually we understand that it is because the, the, the fruit that we see is an evidence of a work of Christ. And so a false prophet cannot have experienced that, so they will not be able to maintain it. So over time you will see by their fruit that they are false. So we get that. So we look at the fruit of people's lives. Only God knows the heart of man. Only the, only the mind of a man can know the heart. And so again, we, 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 it's not that we sit in the judgment seat over people like holding this, this, this evidence of fruit as an ability for us to speak judgment over whether someone is definitively a Christ is redeemed or not. That is still only God's job as a sovereign God and just Father and just God. But yet he's calling us to discernment and to wisdom here. And, and so to, just to understand that. But what are some of the practical things we, do, we look for? And I say the first question is this. What, looking at a teacher, like a prophet, a teacher, a leader that you think might be a false prophet. And we're not talking about someone who is just mistaken. I, please don't take it to that because I, be, I would be kicked out of the church quickly. I make mistakes. My understanding is limited. I am going through the process of sanctification just like you are. My understanding is growing just like yours. I am being refined every day. My understanding is being deepened every day. And I'm thankful, for, I'm thankful when one of you comes to me and says, hey, you know, you said this, and I really don't, I feel like this is falling short of, of the full picture of what God is calling us to. And I mean it when I say that I'm thankful for it. That's how we grow. I'm not talking about the person whose humanness comes through every now and then. I'm talking about the person with the intent to deceive. So what do we look for? First, the question is this. What does the teacher say about Jesus? It's all about Jesus. Sunday school gets it right. I ask my kids, what did you learn in church today? Jesus! Okay, all right. Amen. Well, that's a good start. So we learned Jesus today. Um, anyway, but it, it does. I mean, like it does come down to Jesus. We want. Like Paul says, I have nothing other, nothing to preach other than Christ crucified. So what does the teacher say about Jesus? Second John verse nine says this: Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So we must 
teach Christ, we must teach the teaching of Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ and his work of redemption is of utmost importance. Beware of anyone who denies that Jesus is equal with God. Also beware of anyone who downplays Jesus' sacrificial death. Again, when they're downplaying that, they're downplaying sin, they're downplaying the offense in the, in the, in the destruction of sin. And they're downplaying his worthy sacrifice. Also beware of anyone who rejects Jesus' humanity. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. And we're speaking of here, it's kind of hard for our context to think about the present context. Jesus was a present person for them. And so for us, when we think about that, that doesn't sound like we're saying Jesus is a man. It sounds like we're saying Jesus is the, the, the risen Messiah. But again, speaking of the man Jesus is also the Christ Messiah. Okay, so we have to recognize that God is fully... So again, it's important to cling to the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God. So again, a false teacher would deny that. Another thing to look for is, does the teacher preach the gospel? What is the gospel? It is the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, that he came and re, to redeem, and it must be understood as the only hope of the world. What's the, lo, looking to Scripture as a definition for the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Skipping a few kind of... Uh, uh, statements to get us to this definition of the gospel here. It says, here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So it is as God gave in scriptures, it is also part of his redemptive work in all of history that Jesus came, he lived, he died, was sacrificed for you and me, and that he rose again to give us freedom. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And without that, there is no hope. Without that, there is no redemption. Because God is a good, sovereign creator. God, who created in righteousness and holiness, created us in unity with him as his people. We rebelled. We fell. We needed a redeemer, and Jesus came to redeem. And there is no other way. And we have to see that there are good things that are not the complete message of the gospel. Things that, that get preached as the source of hope the expression of hope that do not contain the hope of Christ found in true repentance. Things like just the statement, God loves you. Great statement, true statement, powerful statement. But outside of the gospel, outside of the God's love you and he showed you in Christ, it is incomplete of the gospel. The, the charge to feed the hungry, again, right and pure and, and, and what we should do, but yet never divorced from the gospel of Jesus as a response and an outflow of the work of Christ in our lives. The idea that in, 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 as, we please, as we please God, He blesses us. Some people call it prosperity gospel. Some people call it other things. Just the idea that God wants you to be comfortable and wealthy. That's another hope besides Jesus. So again, trying to give you pictures of what it looks like to dilute the gospel of Jesus it is Jesus. It's all Jesus. Galatians 1, 6-7 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So cling to Jesus. It's not, Sanchez says, keep it Jesus all the time. That's what he's saying. It's like, keep it Jesus. Keep it center. It's all, it's all there is. Lastly, does the teacher exhibit the character qualities to glorify, uh, to the glorify God? Is there selfishness? 
Is there selflessness, humility, and generosity in the way that they lead and teach, or is there pride, rebellion, and greed? We see the markers of, of those who are in Christ. The leader should lead with those characteristics. So in the warning, there's an intrinsic charge as well. We must be able to recognize the fake. How do, how, how do you do that? How do you recognize a counterfeit bill? These people that are, that are specialists in it. They don't go spending their time studying all the ways that bills are faked. They don't go and study all the possible little nuanced falsities that could possibly arise and staying abreast to the newest technologies that create new ways to deceive. What do they do? They spend time getting to know the real deal. They know the genuine currency inside and out to where the smallest falsity is a glaring evidence for its counterfeitedness. That's the word. So we do the same. That's our call. We don't, we don't spend our time trying to learn the falsities. We just get to learn the real deal. We have the Holy Spirit in us to illuminate His truth and to help us discern the false spirits, and we pursue to know His truth and to know God. That is the kindness of this invitation. Hear that. You want to participate in this responsibility? I'm sure you do. It sounds right. Work to be wise in the ways of deceivers. Scripture tells us to know his wiles, to know his ways. Satan, he is a deceiver. He's the father of lies. But even greater, man, pursue the living God. That's what he's invited you to. And to pursue him, it's not just an academic, information-driven pursuit of making sure that we have the right knowledge that is accurate about God. That's not the, the, the driving heartbeat behind this. It is, a, it is a call to commune with God in His Word, to have such a relationship that there is no separation. We commune in His Word and in prayer and in Christ-centered fellowship. And in that fellowship, we also participate in Christ-centered work. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Be in the word. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He gave us the word so that we could know him, not just know about him. So get in it, devour it, share it with one another. You want it to come to life? Yes, sit in your closet, read it, pray it, but then get out of your closet and talk about it with a brother or sister in Christ. And then go down the street and talk to your neighbor about it that doesn't know Jesus. That's when you get to see him. That's when you get to know him. That's when you know the real deal. And you'll know a fake when you see it. So that's the warning against the false prophet or the false teacher to wrap up, to come down the home stretch, we can do it. Uh, three minutes, right? Okay, sweet. Um, blowing past, going to blow past my 35, I'm sure. Um, it's just a number. Uh, but now we're looking at, we looked at false prophets, false teachers. Now Jesus is going to take us to look at what a false follower looks like. 
false teacher, now a false follower. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I want to make this really simple today. We don't like this passage because it speaks about judgment. And we just, we just, it just gets to us. We don't like it. It gets under our skin. It's not the kind of thing we like to think about that God does, that there's a day of judgment, that there's a day when the buck stops as Barney Fife. The buck stops here. Did you ever hear him say that, Barney Fife? Like, Mark, I feel like you would be right there with me, Barney Fife. You would be. You, you, you quote him a lot, don't you? Okay, so <laughs> get your bullet, Barney. Um, but, you know, the, we don't like to think about that there's a day when we are called to the carpet. Like, my, my son my kids are amazing, and they, are, they listen so well, but they're still kids. And there are, like, there are times, and I, I'm like, Gavin, do not do that. Gavin, if you do that, this is going to happen. And he pushes me, and he does it. And then I go to enforce my consequence, taking away his favorite stuffed animal. No, Daddy, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do what you said. And I say, son, you need to obey before the consequence. The time has come that there's a consequence. Like that's, we don't like that there's a day that the time comes that there is a consequence. I'm a loving father that loves my son. But I also want there to be truth. I want there to be right. I want there to be growth. So because God is just and he's loving, he's, he's called us and he's given us a way to be, to be called innocent in Christ, but yet there's a day that judgment is coming. And while we're talking about judgment, just quickly, this is going to be a prompt for later discussion, Okay. Salvation is achieved achieved in Christ. Salvation is based on the work of Christ. Judgment is based on your works. We don't like that. So we see that's the truth, though. Salvation is achieved in Christ alone, by by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That confession with with your mouth and your belief in your heart is what saves you, is Him as a Savior. But yet, all throughout Scripture, when you see the day of judgment spoken about and the judgment that comes, it is over your works. Even the redeemed person will stand before God in his judgment seat and answer for the way that they live their life. And I don't know how it all works. I don't know, because I know that at the end of the day, like the greatest reward is that I am in face-to-face with God in relationship for eternity, and that's the most satisfying thing about heaven and about eternity. I also know that somehow... The way that I live in this world allows me to bring some kind of gift to God. And what, I, and what I best I understand is that in this judgment day, whenever I'm standing before God as a redeemed child and I'm called to answer for the choices that I made and the way that I live, that somehow it affects the gift, the offering that I get to bring. I still get to bring an offering. I still get to bring a gift. But yet there is a day when we answer for how we lived. I still have eternity in heaven. But yet our judgment, we, we, we see that. We see that we answer for this. And I know I just blew through a bunch of concepts without a bunch of scripture. Let's get coffee and we can talk through the scriptures later. That was a, that was a caveat, a sidebar. So, salvation in Christ alone, but our judgment is still a judgment of our works. So we don't like that. There's, it's kind of building up things we don't like. Because again, it feels like we're moving away from grace, but we are not. Because again, it's in Christ that we are saved. Um, but so what do we do with this though? If, if, if there is a day of judgment coming and, and we need to think about how we live and there is a false follower, 
looking at these, these people that are standing before God saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we cast out demons and, and, and proclaim in your name and prophesy and many mighty works? They, those are good things that they did. And I, I would say that even to some degree, the, I wouldn't say these were false prophets. They seem pretty sincere. So what, is, what are we being pointed to here? Why will we be cast away? So if we know that it's not our works that save us, but yet we see that someone's being cast away, we see there's something deeper we're, being ta- we're talking about here. We're talking about saving faith is what we're talking about. So a false follower is someone who has not placed their saving faith in Christ. That's what makes them false. So what does that mean? The point, once again, is a glorious truth. God's supreme interest is not that you toe the line of holiness. He, he has put a, holy st- a standard of holiness before you and has called you to it. But his supreme interest is that you would know him and be known by him. He loves you and me so much that his greatest concern is that his glory is made known through you and me in and through our relationship with him. That yes, we have a holy life. We have a life that looks like him. A life that is submitting daily to his will and his way. But that is out of affection. That affection and, and, and obedience. Because of understanding what he has done for us. What he's called us into. The miraculous trust. The transforming trust. Is the, the, the one that's only capable when our will is changed. And so it's an evidence what we see is that works, knowledge, and even belief don't save. You're like, wait, uh, you're making my brain hurt. Like Satan and his demons believe in Jesus as he is. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but they shudder at his name. They have not acknowledged him as Lord of their life. They have not submitted their will and way to his. They are rebellious. He wants our holy lives, but he knows that the only fruit that lasts and that matters is that the fruit that comes from a sincere place of relationship, birthed out of that transformed relationship in Christ. So it is our transformed obedience that comes out of our miraculous trust in Jesus that saves us and rightly compels us to his work. So out of this relationship, we don't, we don't just give God a new title of Lord where we just say Lord, but we give him our lives in the obedience of affection. So yes, it's Lord, Lord, but it's again out of that relationship. Galatians 4.9, to get a couple passages in here. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, which is even greater, don't miss that, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 1 John 2, 3 through 6, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So actually this is the key to recognizing a false prophet and to avoiding being a false follower. We should absolutely be zealous and committed to the good works of God and holy lives. We should make choices to reflect that. We should make priorities to align our lives with what God desires. 
absolutely, willfully, actively, proactively. We do that because we are invited to know God and walk with Him. It is in this relationship that we will know the truth because we know Jesus and He is truth. Right? It's the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the difference between life and legalism. Again, if it's, if it's just doing it to do it, to make sure you do enough, it's not life. It's out of relationship, out of being transformed. That's life. And so we see the false teacher that cannot sustain the falsity over time, and its fruit will bear him out because it is not a transformed state. He has not passed from death and life. He's not been adopted as a son and daughter. He's not been old. that has been made new. We see the same thing, the same remedy in the false follower. Starts in your relationship with Christ and your surrender and then your pursuit of Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Kind of the thesis statement of this whole sermon back in Matthew 6.33. So we see we want to be aware of, of the false teacher. We see that we don't want to be a false follower. Pursue the real thing. Pursue the living God as He has made Himself available to you in Christ. Know that what sustains you is not your willpower, not your strength, but His. His Word, His Holy Spirit, and His church. So we have a great promise of hope in Christ for all eternity that we live to and we look to and gives us meaning and hope right now. We also have a present mission that makes the sacrifice worth it. So don't be a false follower. Be aware for false teachers as we pursue the living God. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for loving us, for loving us first, not just loving us once we took a step towards you, but knowing that we would not have taken a step towards you without your love for us, God. A dead person cannot take a step. We know in Ephesians 2 that says we are dead in our sin, unable to, to do anything and because of your love and your grace and your sovereign will you have aroused us God shown us our need for Christ shown us our need for a savior shown us our need for cleansing and Lord you've made us whole Lord let us let us understand let us have a reality a real understanding of what you have called us into in this life God we are a people holy priesthood set apart for your work, for your name and renown. Lord, I thank you for the community that you've built here, that we have each other to lean into and to celebrate with each other and suffer with one another. But Lord, it would all be for loss if it did not point to you, if it did not lift up the name of Jesus and it did not participate in your work. So, Lord, yes, let us do the work of building up the church, but only so that we can do the work that you have called, the same, reason, the same work you sent Jesus into this world for. Took on flesh, took on our filth, got down in the dirt so that we could be restored and redeemed, made whole in Christ, brought into relationship. So let us, again, as we have this special family, Man, let our hearts be turned outwards. Let our eyes be turned outwards at the same time to the nations, starting with our neighbor, our coworker, our community, to the ends of the earth. Lord, what we do is, is, is important here, but it is a small part of the whole. 
So lift our eyes, God. Give us vision that reflects your heart and desire. Let us be satisfied in nothing else than knowing you as you have made yourself to be known in Christ. Let us know that nothing else satisfies you and your requirement of us than that. So we live a life of offering. As we come to communion, let us remember and reflect well on the work of Christ and join in with his mission. In Jesus' name, amen.